So let me begin by parsing the title, Following Nature's Lead. So in antiquity, all the schools of philosophy, cynics, Platonists, Aristotelians, Stoics, even skeptics, operated on this principle. And I think it's an important ecological principle for us today when we think about ethics and how to live in the world responsibly, uh, given the way the world works, the way the biosphere works. And that is, they believed one should live secundum naturam in Latin, according to nature or following nature's lead. The word secundum, it's like a preposition, but it really comes from a verb sequor, which means to follow. That's where I get my, my main title. So the question that I'm interested in is, what does it mean to follow nature's lead or live secundum naturam, according to nature, in the modern world with a scientific understanding of nature? In other words, how can our scientific understanding of the world impact the ethical and then therefore policy choices that we make in how to live and how to be in the world? individually, but also collectively. So the second part of the, um, the subtitle, Ancient Ways of Living in a Dying World. Um, so the publisher was initially a little bit skeptical about dying in the title, right? But this is important, all right? And it's true. Uh, we live in a finite, on a finite, in a finite world, a finite planet. The sun is gonna snuff itself out like billions of stars before it. I don't know, this time next week? I don't think so, but it's going to. Uh, our species is probably going to uh, go extinct, like so many species before and the eons that have preceded us. Um, this is a reality we really need to face. And so um, another question that concerns me is like, you know, save the planet, right? Uh, like uh, save biodiversity, um, you know, the, uh, environmental justice. All these things are hugely important, but I always ask myself, for what? In other words, what are we really saving the planet for? So what is it going to look like afterwards? So things can just continue the same way that they've always been so that we can, you know, use resources, you overuse resources in a different way than we're using them now. I don't think so. I, nobody here would, would agree with that premise, but I, I sometimes I wonder the, the, the for what question. So uh, living in a dying world, that's a fact. And the ancients were very, all the ancient schools of philosophy understood this, that um, life is a rehearsal for death, your individual death, but also the ultimate fate, which is finite uh, for human beings on this planet. That wasn't a downer, that was a prospect for living, living well um, while we have it. So what does it mean to live ecologically in a dying world? If it's a dying world, fact, um, it, how, what are reasons we can give for, for ecological living anyhow? Like what are the what are the compelling arguments? So ancient ways, um, ancient ways, of course, is what I do. Uh, and ancient ways, oh, you know what? You loaded uh, the, the PowerPoint and I added an uh, uh, additional slide, but I will I will skip that slide because is, it was so good too. But I, maybe I'll, I'll paraphrase it for you. So ancient ways, as a classicist, I do I, I work in the classical tradition, so the Western paradigm, right? Western quote unquote authors. Are there other ancient ways to live uh, in, the, in this world ecologically? Yes, indigenous ways, Buddhist ways, Hindu ways, Islamic ways, secular ways. Um, I'm not valorizing one over the other. I am working from my area of expertise, but I will say that I'm a little bit, I, I'm grinding an ax just a little bit to a finer point because in the discourse concerning ecology, ecological living, um, there tends to be a 
finger pointed to the Western paradigm as the source uh, of, of the problem. Partially true, but the ancients, the ancients that I study were pre-modern. They were pre-industrialized. They were pre-digital. They were pre-postmodern. They were pre-post-human. They, they lived with a sensitivity and a closeness to the exigencies of their environment that we are we don't live under today. We've been you know, our technology enhanced disconnectedness from nature is, uh, has, is it makes us makes our experience different. I think from the ancients, at least as I read the ancients. So they have what Bruno Latour calls a sort of sensitivity, speaking in terms of like system science, to react to the conditions of their environment in a way that. Uh, perhaps we've lost, or certainly about this, that we can recover from them. So I look to the ancients and I see solutions um, for our, our current world. Um, and so that ancient ways, the, the, the slide that I don't have that I wish I had that I could read to you or you could see is a quotation from GK Chesterton. And he says this, that about tradition, right? Because really what I study in classics is tradition. He says, tradition is the democracy of the dead. It is giving a vote to our ancestors who just happened to be dead by an accident of death, right? Whereas, you know, we would never think that we would just give the vote to certain people by like noble people or rich people just by an accident of their birth. We believe that democracy is for all. So uh, that notion of, you know, tradition, studying the past, as letting the ancestors speak is meaningful to me. And, and it, I always, it, it, it inspires me to, to, to do what I do. So, uh, and finally, I, I call this an origin story because I'm gonna to explain to you how I got to where I am now from where I was maybe five, six years ago. Um, and in classics, we, we deal with what are called uh, etiologies or especially if we study myth, for instance, etiological myths. If you're a scientist, you know what an etiology is. It's an explanation of a cause. What causes something else to happen? Um, we do this in classics too, remarkably. Uh, and, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of tell you where I, how I got to be where I am. And, it, and it's not from book learning. It's from this, the farm that you mentioned that we run in Shoreham. So uh, my wife and I run this farm, 125 acres. We have sheep. We have Scottish Highland cattle. We have um, chickens. You know, is it a hobby farm? I don't know. It seems like a lot more than a hobby to me. Is it a gentleman's farm? I don't think so because I'm not much of a gentleman. Uh, and I spent like three hours before driving up here doing work outside. And my hands are finally starting to get crusty and, and you know, disheveled again. They were all lily white and soft. Uh, I was in Marseille not working. Um, Working this farm and living close to the land and having to make decisions and react to our environment uh, and the challenges that it, it, it poses is kind of what got me interested in two things, sustainability as a large concept and also system science. So complex systems, how things are related to one another, holistic living. Um, uh, so, these are the two people that purport to run the farm, but really the animals in the farm run them. This is the farmer and her husband on the right. And this is our house, so just snapshot of house in one of the barns. Uh, we built that all ourselves. And so it was a pay as you go, 
learn as you go sort of operation. So a lot of uh, problem solving and dealing with um, things on the ground uh, in a tangible, practical way. You know, I'm a classicist. I read Homer, all these you know dead white guys, but uh, this experiential, literally experiential learning is kind of what brought me um, to an interest in environmental humanities. This culminated in this book from 2020, I know at least one person in the audience has read some of it, bless him. <laughs> and um, Plato's Pigs and Other Ruminations, where I, I uh, talk about the backstory of sustainability and system sciences, science in classical antiquity. So uh, some of the topics I talk about today are related to that book, but also forward-looking to the book I just described to you, Following Nature's Lead. Uh, that uh, led to this book, which... Um, appeared just this fall, uh, How to Be a Farmer, An Ancient Guide to Life on the Land, uh, published by Princeton. It's an anthology of extracts about farming, not just farming, uh, living close to the land, um, and quite a variety of different kinds of experts. And not so much like how to, like not how to, you know, hoe your beans or what grapes to plant in your vineyard, but more of farming as a state of mind or uh, what it means to live in a landscape and think in a landscape. That's something that, um, you know, as a new member of the Department of Geography, I'm very excited about pursuing in other projects as well, the influence of, of landscape on sort of social symbolic systems that human beings live uh, according to. Uh, that led to this book, How to Say No. Um, this is about the cynics, the uh, the cynics were, they weren't really philosophers. I'm not sure what they were. They were kind of performance artists, artists in antiquity. They were street people. They were, they were, they were, uh, what were they? They were more than normal people um, who lived as, uh, without. They, their goal was to live with as little as possible and to live that way as publicly as possible um, as a protest against social convention. And essentially, they said no to social conventions and culture and were adamant about how, how we can live much more closely to nature than we think we can. So this idea of living close to nature, the cynics were probably the card-carrying exemplars of that from antiquity. So uh, how to say no, uh, Diagnosis and the Cynics, I, I just finished this and it's, uh, all, it's in press right now and it should be coming out this fall in the same series by Princeton as before. Um, this is the cover that I wanted to put on this <laughs> So what you saw in the previous cover was um, Diogenes holding his lantern, looking for a good man in the middle of the broad daylight because they're so hard to find. Good people are so hard to find. You need a lantern even in broad daylight to find them. And he had his little dog next to him. I don't know if you noticed, noticed a little toe-toe. The word cynic means dog or dog-like in Greek. And it was a, a term of uh, cast as an aspersion against cynics because their behavior was so unhuman and inhuman. And, you know, they did all their business uh, out in the open, you know, fornicating, defecating, you name it, they did it. Um, again, as this obvious protest against social convention. Uh, they also were very fond, or at least Diogenes was very fond of this gesture, um, which I think is the ultimate no. It's no with no questions asked, no explanation given. It's just no, right? So, uh, and, and actually there is an anecdote, uh, two, two or three anecdotes about Diogenes doing this. 
um, in antiquity. I won't belabor the point, but I, I just thought they wouldn't let me have that on the cover. <laughs> so uh, this, uh, I just put this in here because it's a little dog that uh, is a little dingbat that graces the pages of the book. But again, um, if, you, if you know anything about um, like Pompeii, a lot of people who aren't even into classics know about Pompeii, you'll recognize that as a, a drawing from a, a colleague of mine I've collaborated with in the past with about with other projects that he's illustrated for me uh, of this um, this mosaic from Pompeii, Kawe Kanem, Beware the Dog, right there. Um, all right, two maps I want to show you quickly because I'm, I'm now almost a certified geographer. Um, <laughs> this one is the Roman Empire at its greatest extent in 117 AD under uh, the Emperor Trajan. So when the Pax Romana had had reached its full extent and all was well with the world and happy. Um, not true, but even so, territorially, this was the greatest extent. And I just show it here because look how look 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 how much area the the study of classics encompasses. Even more than this, but this is the ancient Mediterranean basin. But it pushes into the Near East, pushes up into you know uh, Dacia and, and Bulgaria. You know Ukraine is just right up there. Uh, all the way to Spain, North Africa. So you have this congeries of cultures and languages and, and traditions that are all interacting when you study classics in the ancient Mediterranean world. And they, they, they percolate, they, they surface in what you study. So we're really talking about sort of an area in international studies discipline when you talk about studying the classics, but just in the past. So again, the democracy of the dead, you have, you've got a lot more than just like dead white guys talking when you study the classics. You're talking about this geography, even, you know, this little micro, they're, they're, the Mediterranean is sort of like a microclimate. And if you, if you look at the extent of the Roman Empire, it's interesting that it's almost coterminous with where olives will grow, almost, you know, take Britain out, maybe take far, far out there. But you know the, the the footprint of where the olive will grow and the, the climate that supports it is is almost like the, the Roman Empire, which is very interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Another slide that is meaningful to me, another picture, another map, um, is this one, and this is uh, representing time, uh, geologic and biologic, bi geological and biological time. Um, so uh, this this idea of I study an area of the world in the past, but I'm also very concerned and we should all be very concerned about where we come from and where we're going. And I think it gives us perspective to understand this time dimension. We're, we're here writing, like we're just this little tiny sliver in geologic time that is almost insignificant, but yet we think we're so important and yet we have this incredible technological power to destroy the world if we, if we keep going on the way we are. So uh, we need to have this perspective too. And even I do um, as when I study the past. And so uh, I'm kind of marrying those two maps, space time. I'm, I'm dealing with space time in um, what I study as a classicist. So I, I wanna give you something a little more tangible uh, that, to take away. I'm gonna give you three exemplar. I might not get to the last one, which is okay. Uh, I'll try to do these, these, these two here. So this idea of sustainability of interest to me, of interest to us all. The word was coined in, in the 1970s, you know, as a, as a word. Now it's used, uh, overused to the point where what does it mean? You know, you talk about the war, war being sustainable. That war is not sustainable. 
like, okay, well, <laughs> contradiction in terms, war, of course it's not sustainable. You can't sustain a war. So uh, it's used now for greenwashing. It's used everywhere. It's almost become a vapid term. So uh, in antiquity, they had, they had this idea of what was durable, what would last, what was undergird, uh, undergirded to a point where it would, it would subsist over time. Uh, an entity, whether it be a, a society or an individual or any sort of structure. So I, I quote Shakespeare there, you know, a rose by any other name would, would smell as sweet. So in antiquity, we're not going to find the word sustainability, but we will find the concept. But what words did they use to describe it? I'll just give you, I think I'm only going to have time to do the first two, so I'm going to actually call that right now. Um, Plato, for example, uh, he wrote The Republic. Uh, I argue in that book, Plato's Pigs, that his idea of sustainability is captured in his notion of justice. So we think of justice today as righting a wrong. If you're wronged, you have recourse to get justice, um, or it's correcting or some sort of um, uh, like uh, uh, rehabilitating a wrong. Um, that's not what Plato meant when he talked about justice in the Republic. Justice in the Republic is everything uh, in its right place, everyone doing his or her proper thing, activity in society to form a harmonious whole. And not only individuals interacting with society, but parts of the human soul, you know, uh, the mental function, the spirited function, the appetitive function, what makes us human, our psychology, literally, we call it the suke, the soul, also has to everything doing its part correctly, not exceeding its bounds. So you don't think with your groin, right? And, and vice versa. It, you're, you're an integrated person who does, uh, who, who lets the proper aspect of your, your psychology uh, perform the activities you must, you must perform. Um, that's down and dirty. So uh, Plato talks about um, justice in this way. And in the Republic, it's interesting. Uh, people, you know, read the Republic today and they get scared and they see, you know, totalitarianism. They see the philosopher king. They see no individual freedom. Um, they see a lot of things that yeah, could, be, could be taken in that direction from Plato. But my reading of Plato, I don't think that they're, they're there at the heart and core of what Plato is, is all about. What people don't know about the Republic is that all those prescriptions about how to solve the problems of society do not represent Plato's, in my view, ideal society. So before Plato even embarks on this whole idea of the education of the guardians, you may not be familiar with this, but just, and, and the philosopher king and, and all of these prescriptive moves, right, to organize society. Before that, he, he says, how did, how, this is in, in early in book two, so it's at the very beginning of the Republic. How do societies organize themselves and why? He says, well, societies come to be because no one is self-sufficient. No one can provide everything that other people need, right? P people are not self-sufficient. So I have need of you, you have need of me, and we bring our contributions to form this whole that works in harmony. Um, and as Plato describes it, and it's with a little bit of faux naivete, and he's sort of playing, I don't know if you're familiar with that game, SimCity. You know, it's kind of like, so if I could play this, if I could set up an ideal society, here's how I might do it, and here's how it might work. 
His ideal society is a vegetarian, rustic society, people living very close to the land. Importantly, people not interested in land that's not theirs, that live within their means, right? This idea of living within the limits. Um, and they, so because they live within their limits, they don't have to attack other, other cities, other towns to get what they don't have because they've already decided what they're to live within their means. And so there, there is no, there's no slavery in this society because that's, that was the source of slavery in antiquity was, it was like a residual of war. It wasn't chattel slavery so much. It was like you lost in war, all your men and women become enslaved and, and work for, for the, the victors. So it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, a peaceable kingdom in which um, you know, rustic, uh, simple living peasants are living within their means in harmony with one another, each, each bringing to the table what they can bring. Uh, and Socrates says, that's the healthy society. That's the healthy one. And then one interlocutor in the Republic objects to this. He says, especially about the vegetarian diet, which is pretty interesting. He says, what do you mean? There's no cuisine in this culture. You're just going to eat like cabbages and beetroot and you know lettuce. Um, and and Socrates and he says this this interlocutor, his name is Glaucon, says what you're describing, Socrates, is a city for pigs. There's no culture there. There's no especially no cuisine. Socrates retorts and says, Ah, you're not interested in a healthy city. You're interested in the feverish city, the one sick and in need of remediation. And the rest of the Republic, and we're talking book two, and then there's you know 10 books in it, uh, it. The rest of the Republic is about the remediation of a city that is defective um, and how to fix it. But for Plato, through Socrates, he has this idea as the, as the, as the model. Okay, good time, five minutes. So justice, uh, the other um, concept, and this comes from the Roman world that I see um, as a, a prelude, a precursor to sustainability is the word frugalitas in Latin. Our word frugality comes from it. And it means many of the same things. It meant many of the same things then as it does now. But it's interesting that this word comes from the word fruit, fruits, fructus, right? Fruga. And, and so the idea, and it's also related to the, the Latin word for profit. And the Romans were such an agrarian society, right? maybe a little bit like the one Plato imagines, or, or at least they idealized an agrarian society where um, produce was the result of, was fruit that grew uh, in your, in your, in your uh, garden or in your, in, on your farm. And it's also the word for profit. In other words, profit is productive and, it, and it's basically an agricultural notion. This is a, a value that the, the Romans really called themselves back to time and time again, even at the high empire when we, you know, you have emperors and decadence and people living in luxury. Um, they, were, they were adamant that, that a stable society is one that is rooted in the land where the good citizen is a good farmer and that these, these farms that, that would sustain society are not large factory farms that later grew up in the Roman period. They're called latifundia but rather small farms worked by citizens, uh, citizens themselves. So this notion of Roman frugality and small farming, this preference for small farming, and we can talk in the, in the discussion about, about that some more, drew me to Roman agriculture. 
and modern Roman agriculture. So these are trees from an agriturismo in Italy, where I've established a uh, archaeological dig, uh, not, not an archaeologist, but I'm kind of like the, the matchmaker and organizer of this uh, project, where um, a friend of mine has, now a friend of mine, has discovered a Roman villa in an olive grove where the Roman villa is ancient, second century BCE, so really old, uh, with substantial remains in an olive grove that is equally ancient. And in this olive grove, there are uh, olives growing that are unknown to the modern genome. They're pre-modern. They're varieties that we just, we don't know yet. So the prospects of propagating those ancient varieties is part of what this project is about. So we have um, an archeological dig where we're finding the realia of what an ancient Roman villa looked like, but it's located in situ, literally in the olive grove, cheek by jowl, where uh, the crop was produced. And, and those are equally uh, ancient uh, varieties. So uh, we're doing a lot of things here. This is where it's located. Um, it's about an hour and a half outside of Rome in the Sabine Hills, which was proverbial frugal territory for the Romans. Um, this is a, a mosaic that uh, when I first visited, this was exposed, popping up through the grass. You can see it. This is before it's been preserved. Uh, it was just there. Uh, this is remains of an ancient water cistern. This is part of an underground barn um, that is called the Cryptoporticus that uh, we, we are excavating. This is what it looks like. It's extensive. It's not small. Um, and in there, you find things like this. This is an olive oil separating vat. Um, unique because it's a three bay one. You don't, those are technicalities you don't have to concern yourself <laughs> with, but it is unique. Uh, and it is ancient because the pipe that connects the three um, bays and it works by displacement so that when you get to, down to this last bay, it's just oil with no water in it. Uh, that, that pipe is made out of lead and not iron. So it's definitely Roman. Um, and we bring interns. If you're an undergraduate here and interested in, in this, uh, Next summer, we'll start bringing interns again post-COVID, and they have the, the joy of discovery where they find like things like this in the ground, the little Neptune Triton um, uh, there. But we also find stuff like this, and this is an ancient olive pit that literally I just plucked out of the ground the day I took this picture. There it was. Oh, look at that. Broke it open, uh, and that's that. Um, and why this is interesting is because the ancient pits that we're finding in the ground have a signature on them, the pits, because it's like a handprint or a fingerprint. Each olive variety has its unique signature with the cracks and the crevices in the pit. So you can take the ancient pit you find in the ground, compare it to the modern tree still growing in his olive grove that are 2000 years old, these trees, some of them, and you can identify you can make the match to see which one, where they go. So this, we, we can create a taxonomy of, of the trees that are in this grove based on the archeological paleobotanical finds that we are uh, uh, unearthing from the, from the site. And the goal of this, and I'm, I'm very close to being done. The goal of this, and I'm not gonna talk about monks. You can, be, you can thank me for that. Uh, the goal of this is to propagate the unknown varieties. Why? Because if they've been resilient for this last 2000 plus years, the chances are promising that they could be resilient and uh, productive going into the future with uh, issues of climate change and also fungal infection that are affecting olive trees everywhere, especially 
with the monoculture of the olive that is really taking over, for instance, like Spain. So there's promise here for, you know, uh, 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 propagation that could produce varieties that will uh, serve us well in the future. But never mind that, there's, there's more propagation. There's also the prospects of tasting a little bit of ancient Rome. And I tell you, their olive oil, right, they, they produce olive oil. Their olive oil is definitely different. It's greener, it's more acidic, it's tartar. The stuff that we get, you buy in Costco, even this, you know, the fine extra virgin olive oil you get in the States here is, is very just bland in comparison to this. This is probably what olive oil is supposed to taste like. Um, anyway, so there we go. And I'll stop there. We talked about kind of antiquity being kind of pre-postmodern. You mentioned Latour, um, you mentioned Plato thinking about how there's these interdependence between people, or people can't live alone. And I was wondering if you also see evidence of kind of the, the lack of distinction between people and nature. Um, I think a lot of often Western ideas and postmodernism is kind of saying, well, maybe people aren't separate from nature. Do you see that in, in antiquity? In antiquity. In, in yes, these writings? I mean, I mean it, it, yes, of course, because um, when, when it was much, much easier for the agents to take nature for granted as well, precisely because they didn't face the same issues that we, we face. It, you know, the exigencies weren't as dire for them. So, you know, uh, they could pollute or divert a river, you know, and not notice any consequences for three or 400 years or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, because the population was much smaller and the impact, uh, their impact was just less than it, um, it is for us today with too many people on the planet. You know, the planet was really not designed for this many people. But um, so, yes, you do see that. But in spite of that, you do see also, and this is what surprises me, this, in spite of the fact that they could take great advantage of nature, they could have exploited it, they, they had this ethos of restraint. And here I'm speaking in grand generalities, and, and I'm sure, you know, um, a classicist could say, oh, well, what about, what about, there are many what's about, but um, on the whole, they, they understood that you don't go beyond what your prescribed place is. And it's not a classist thing. It's not a thing about social station or anything. It's about uh, your, your, your interaction with your, your environment, social and natural. So um, I, I find that that, that uh, I don't want to say counteracts, I think that outweighs the kind of any sort of cavalier attitude they, you know, the Roman army would have when they like literally salted all the fields of Carthage so that would, nothing would ever grow again, right? There's intentional destruction um, that would last for generations. So overall, my impression is, is that they were more sensitive in that Latorian sense um, than not. But, but it's a fair, it's definitely a fair criticism. They're no better than us, right? Yeah. Thank you. Yes, um, this question I'm going to ask, is, I'm getting it with a caveat because it has a lot of assumptions and issues, and it's more of a theoretical question okay. about what you said. I'd like to hear the question. So you were earlier, when you first started, you talked about sort of like basing the idea that you were talking about in tradition. Um, so I was like, have you considered that tradition is a theoretical basis for a modern structure based on ancient ways as our current history has, has played out? where we find ourselves mired in ecological problems. Um, do you think that basing 
in the theory in that in that sort of in the traditional ancient ways that you're, that you're that you discuss is naturally disposed to leading to the same point we've actually ended up in in reality. I just want to make sure I understand what you're asking. So what we are now is like some sort of inevitable culmination of of all of that. Yeah. So like since it actually has come to this point. Ah. So like this, so very theoretical question, but <laughs> yeah. Well, there are. I, I read this. Um, okay. So. His Royal Highness, uh, His Royal Highness Prince Charles wrote this book called Harmony. It's kind of a coffee table book. It's actually kind of a nice book. And he's not really a bad guy, right? You know, somebody else puts the toothpaste on his toothbrush when he brushes his teeth in the morning. I'm talking about the Prince of Wales, Charles, right? He wrote this book called Harmony, um, and, and it was reviewed by, you know, Jenny Diskey, who's like one of my favorite authors. She's dead now, but she's she's terrific, super critical. Um, uh, she, um, she basically said, you know, that he kind of paints this rosy picture of like living in harmony with nature from the past. And she said, well, well, what does it mean to, she raises my question in a way indirectly, what does it mean to living according to nature? You know, what is natural anyway? Nature is such a fraught, complicated uh, concept. And she said, well, maybe, you know, we are, this is, this is like the inevitable result of, of, of what our evolution has brought us to. Right, all our evolutionary impulses—we're acting on them. We're 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 being completely natural by being self-seekers, by being maximizers, um, and and uh, extracting the resources, trying to get as much and store as much as we can, whether it be capital or whatever possessions. Um, what makes that unnatural? What makes the alternative natural versus that? And you know, she has a she has a point. One could argue that, but then you're you're like then you have, you're, you face the paralysis of Okay, so is that really true? I mean, what what why should we bother then, right? Sort of being cynical in the in the modern sense at that point. So my view of that is um, that no, uh, what we are now is not the inevitable result of some sort of culmination of a Western tradition or any tradition that has brought us to this point. And I think the, the big reason why I, I think that is because the ancients were also pre-capitalists. I didn't mention that when I said all my pre, 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 pre. <laughs> they were not capitalists. And this idea of, of, of amassing unearned income that you have nothing, you have no, no uh, direct connection to uh, earning, maintaining, preserving, uh, I think is a real, real, real problem. Yeah. Here's another example also. Um, are you familiar with Lynn White Jr.'s um, uh, essay from like 1968, 1969, and I think it was in the journal Science, where it talks about the ecological roots, no, the, the, the historical roots of our ecological crisis. And he, anybody familiar with this, Lynn White Jr.? It's a famous piece, you know, it's problematic in some way, but it was one that people talked about for many, many years in, in the environmental movement. Um, he basically says, like, you know, it's the dominion theology of the Judeo-Christian tradition of you know, humans dominating nature rather than cooperating with nature that brought us to this point. And he cites as an, ex as an example, sort of an exception that only proves the rule, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, who sang canticles to the sun and the moon and hugged wolves and, you know, lived, lived out in nature and had no needs and kind of like a uh, cynic in a way, he was very cynically. Um, uh, a guy named Rene Dubois wrote, uh, he was a big figure in the, in the first um, United Nations Climate Summit or something like that um, uh, in the 70s. He wrote this, this 
book called uh, called the God the God Within it has nothing to do with theology. It's a book about ecology, and the guy himself was a bench scientist, a biologist. So long winded answer to your question, but he basically said, no, St. Francis is not the model that we need to understand how human beings should live in society. We have another ancient model. Um, and he said, this is what I didn't get a chance to talk about today. He said the Benedictines were cooperators with nature. They were, they were, their whole approach was not leave nature as it is, don't touch it. It's like, no, you exist in nature. You are here, you're part of it. You're gonna have an impact make that impact a positive impact, one that works with this symbiotic sensitivity to what's out there. So there, there have always been these sort of, you know, in the, in, even in the Western tradition, these like, you know, whatever, not pockets, not the right word, these, these strands in the tradition that have always been ecologically minded and concerned. I'm not sure if that's getting to the answer to your question. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping to kind of recover those kind of those strands and then re-emphasize them because I think they have a lot to, to, to say. Is that close to something? Oh yeah, yeah. I, it was, it was I a theoretical question. So I really just was like curious about your thoughts on that. Right. Um, and I'm going to have to get up and go and make sure pizza's here. I'm not getting up because I didn't like her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yes. So we do have a few online questions. So Amy Germain asks, have you thought about comparisons of the Roman sensibility of sustainability or living within one's means to the, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Adenosami principle of seven generations, that our planning and decisions today should be done with the future seven generations ahead in mind. Okay, I missed half of that question. Can I read it myself? Yeah. <laughs> All right. One of the uh, one of the pitfalls of being a farmer, you live close to the land, but you drive tractors and you run chainsaws. <laughs> so my hearing is not the best. Have you thought about the wrong? Oh, this is Amy. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Have you thought about comparisons of the Roman sensibility of sustainability of living within one's means to the, uh, how do I say principle? I, it has a native indigenous thing of seven generations. I haven't, Amy, but I'm, I'm becoming more interested in that. That our planning and decisions today should be done with, uh, oh, the future seven generations in mind. Well, okay, uh, Amy, I have chapter and verse from the Bible to recite to you. Uh, and that would be Plato's Republic. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't actually, I didn't actually read, um, but I meant to. So in that city of pigs, where Socrates describes what he considers the ideal city of rustic simplicity, he says this, this is really remarkable. So he talks about their life together, what they'll do. And they, they'll, you know, they'll prepare food for themselves and baking uh, the, the, the grains that they grow into into bread, mashing some of it into excellent loaves and cakes. This, this they'll spread out and they'll eat on any old patch of reeds and, or clean leaves. Reclining on beds woven of bryony and myrtle boughs, they and their children will feast sumptuously. Then sip wine, hymning hymns to the gods. They will enjoy one another's company, meaning they'll have sex. That's what it really means in the Greek. Yet they will not produce children beyond their means, interesting, and thus beyond their guards um, against poverty or war. And then he goes on, continues and says this, and living life in this manner, in peace and in good health, so it would seem, they will reach old age and pass on to their progeny a life similar to the one they themselves enjoy. So I love that passage because it shows how uh, aware Plato is to 
the next generations that the life that we choose to lead now, lead now within limits is, is not limited in a strange paradoxical way. It's looking forward to the future, to other lives. We talk about tradition as being the democracy of the dead. This is like looking forward to the preservation of lives yet lived. Um, and Clay is aware of this. And this is why he wants stability in society. This is why he wants people to live within the limits uh, set for them by quote unquote nature. Um, so that's a great question. And um, not so much the Romans in that regard, but the, but the Plato. Yes. So gonna caveat this, I'm a data scientist and an engineer, so really don't have much of a knowledge of, <laughs> of the antiquities, but um, I'm wondering, in your opinion, how much of sort of the, the Roman, you know, not or the Romans not exploiting nature is a function of altruism or you know sort of good you know, beliefs versus sort of like just the lack of resources and lack of an internal combustion engine. I guess the reason that I ask this is the patrician class seemed to be pretty greedy and you know using their wealth to build more wealth and that's kind of in part what led to the downfall is my understanding. No, yeah, a lot of a lot of things in that in that um, in that observation, and it, it, it's true. So um, yes, they were limited by the the technology that they possessed um, to to not do as much damage as they otherwise might have if they had the internal combustion engine. Never mind, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so that is true. Um, but you know, there's another school of thought, and this goes back to Jacob Burkhart, very famous, um, you know, historian, intellectual historian of antiquity that they also resisted technological advances. In other words, uh, they, were, they were like, if it ain't broke, why fix it? They, I mean, yes, there was innovation in antiquity, you know, in, uh, you know technological developments changed warfare, for example, and you know, changed how people fought and all this sort of thing. But there was a remarkable consistency uh, and sameness over long stretches of time in antiquity that, that, that seemed to be by choice because it was sort of like it, it, kind of like Schumacher's idea of appropriate technology. It works for what we need it to work for. So why why change it? Um, and it, it had sort of a you know, homeostatic homeostatic uh, result that they liked. They were happy with. So about the the, uh, the patrician class, very true. I mean, the whole decline and fall narrative about antiquity is that luxury luxury led to. The demise, right, and and made people soft and and corrupt and blah blah blah. True. However, all through that, even the, just that narrative itself is actually a valorization of the old timey value system of frugalitas. So you you get the moralists from later antiqu later antiquity talking about how you know it's it's luxury that's corrupting us. Where once upon a time we knew how to we were satisfied with barley meal and porridge. That was enough for us. And look how strong our ancestors were. Look how much they achieved and what great lives that they lived. So, um, so there was always this countervailing force, even at the most decadent moments, like our own in Roman and in, in ancient in the ancient world, that we're, we're speaking against that. And, and that's part of the reason why the cynics made their protest so vocal and, and physical, and why they enacted really their protest against luxury and, and decadence. 
um, to, to make that point. So it's, it's sort of that, talking about strands when Ben asked the question, it's, it's that strand that was always there in antiquity that I'm most interested in. But you're right, um, that narrative is not a false one, that um, there was plenty of corruption, abuse, luxury um, that led to instability in ancient society. The Jeff Bezos is of, of Rome, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, Nero fiddles while Rome burns. I mean, Nero is like, you know, these are the locus classicus of that kind of uh, sort of thing. Um, but there were many Neros, um, and, and actually worse Neros, just not quite as well known. Yes. My first question is just a kind of follow up to that. And the uh, question basically, to what extent is the kind of discourse and consciousness that you're presenting us from antiquity a kind of countercultural discourse? within antiquity right. and not the kind of prevailing or predominant uh, mode, just like you know, many conservationists would identify today as kind of countercultural and resisting these forces. So I'm thinking of what you just cited in terms of late Roman backlash against luxury and, and almost capitalistic type modes of acquisition and hoarding. Right. Um, and then to the example of the city of Pace, right? Where Glaucus says like, what are you talking about? We don't live like this. Right. <laughs> um, and we right. don't want to live like this. Uh, right. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, Plato is a weirdo. I mean, Plato's view is like total countercultural. I mean, uh, it's a foreign worldview. It's not a normal, even though it's prescriptive in the Republic as he delivers it, it is so unlike uh, the traditional values of, of the fourth century BCE. That you know, it, that's what makes it so interesting. Is why it's a, a classic in some ways. You know, it was, um, but you're right. But the, but these are these are many of the voices, as you know, that survive in the in the so-called canon. I mean, and this is the reason why I I, I I'm so uh, what do you want to say invigorated by studying the classics all the time because they are they are countercultural. They are not like these. They they are not like uh, what's the right word? They're not conservative. They're anything but conservative. They're like radical. If you really took Plato literally, I mean, it would transform society. It's very radical. And the cynics, I mean, you saw just, you know, Diogenes giving the world the finger. Um, they meant that. Um, and these are not just small pockets. This is like a big part of what the canon is, is, is all about. Uh, even the historiographers, right? The people who are writing history in antiquity, who write about the events that are maybe just out there and kind of the surface events, they're usually their their writing is is loaded, right? Their 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 perspective. They bring a perspective to it, and it's often uh, infused by that same moralistic quality of like uh, oughtness, like what should be the case. This is what happened. This is what this is who did what to whom. But a subtext almost always as they present their facts, Thucydides, Tacitus, I mean Suetonius, is a critique of those facts embedded in it. So that's what makes reading the classics for me so rich is that the critique is there. Yeah. You know, sometimes I talk about the ancients as like, okay, they provided, they provide two things to us. They provide us, they provide the enigma and the solution when it comes to problems of the world today, whether it be climate problems, ecological problems, or any social economic problems. You know, it, the, the sources you mentioned this before, the sources are in from are in it. Ben also was saying this. The sources come from antiquity, but also the solutions can come from antiquity. 
And this is why that democracy of the dead idea is so important uh, to revisit, right? We think we have a new idea, but really that idea has been around a long time. And somebody like me is in a good position to be able to judge that because you know you, you study the past, anybody who studies the past, um, and it's just a good reminder. So you need somebody like me around, even though this is the God Institute for Environment, to remind you that, ah, that's been said before, that's been thought before. That's actually a perfect segue to the question that I wanted to ask you. I want to tell the crowd a story about why I'm going to ask you this. Just wanted to hop in. This, the, we're getting down towards the end of it, so this will have to be the last question. Sounds good. Question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. You should have the last word. Uh, well, I want to tell the crowd why I'm going to ask this. I had directed this program for first-year students for about 10 years, and in the last year that I was director, I met Mark, I think because you participate in the sustainability faculty fellows. And we were looking around for someone to teach a course in the spring. And I said, would you want to teach this course? And he said, definitely. I would like to teach a course for this program for students in earth and environment. And we've been teaching geology and geography courses and English course and so on. And he said, definitely. And I was on sabbatical that spring when he taught it. And he sent me these student reflections back that were just like mind-blowing how much you opened their mind. Mm -hmm. And so my kind of final question for you is, when you teach, it's a, I'm so amazed at your scholarship, but I also just want to acknowledge what an incredible teacher you are. And when you end up with 18-year-olds in your class, which you do very often, like you're the first impression that these kids often have, what's that like? Like what have you learned from exposing college students mm -hmm. to this and what, can we learn from like introducing these ideas? Right. That's a great question. Uh, I have to say what I've learned is how, how I've, I've been surprised at how receptive students have been about recovering lost knowledge from the past, whether it be indigenous knowledge or classical knowledge to inform their either personal decisions, uh, but also policy, you know, larger lifestyle decisions that affect us all. Um, I'm amazed that they're they're interested in it. They they love it. They they they, they you know it's not the same old same old. I have, I've heard all that. Oh yeah, I studied that in high school. It's not that. It's like I've never heard about any of this before. And they're wide eyed, bushy tailed uh, to to you know learn more about it. And and this is the thing that I, that excites me is is to kind of uh, compare it to what they are experiencing in their other courses that are maybe more traditionally ecological or environmental history kind of courses and, and seeing where the resonances are and seeing points of comparison. I have to say one text in particular, students have, has been, it's jaw dropping for them. And that is it's not even a classical text, but it's a text that is informed by the classics on, on almost every page, every sentence. And that is John Ruskin's uh, treatise on political economy called Unto This Last. I mean, it, I, I, go, I go around recommending that book to everyone all the time. He was a master prose stylist. And for some people that can be hard to get around because he wrote in the Victorian period, but he wasn't like Charles Dickens with the interminable sentence. He was, he was like rhetorical, but the content of his thought and his critique of capitalist society uh, and externalizing impulses in society to make other people pay for something that you should be responsible for, uh, are very, very, very powerful. And students, you know, once they, they know it's close to my heart, so they maybe, maybe they give me the time of day. To say, <laughs> but I think they respond to that really well and strongly because um, 
it's, it's just a powerful critique of capitalist society um, and uh, it's kind of proto-environmental awareness um, in there. 18, 1862, big influence on Gandhi um, also. Okay, I guess I can stop.